Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I had a chat with Joe Goodkin, a Chicago-based singer-songwriter with a classics degree. For decades, he has toured the U.S. performing his original one-person song interpretations of Homer's Odyssey and Iliad called The Blues of Achilles. He has accumulated almost 400 performances between the two pieces in 45 U.S. states and Europe. He has written about his experience of being a modern bard for online journals and websites like Eidolon and Antigone. His work has been supported by many notable organizations, including the Society for Classical Studies and the Classical Association of the Middle West and South, and as a part of the National Endowment for the Humanities Institute on teaching trauma through ancient texts. In this episode, we spoke about his innovative work in combining classical stories and music into his own show, which other ancient stories should be fun to adapt into live music, and about both the challenges and advantages of taking his show virtual during the pandemic. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to have you here. So I just want to sort of get the ball rolling and, and say, you know, how did you get into classics in the first place? Yeah, I call myself generally like an accidental classicist, which I don't think is that uncommon. I got to college at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I thought I was going to be a psychology major. And my freshman year at Wisconsin, I took Ancient Greek 101 just sort of on a whim. I had always been fascinated with uh, ancient Greek characters and words and, and things like that. And by the end of the semester, I realized I just had totally fallen in love with the language and took Ancient Greek 102 and classical myth and classical archaeology my second semester. And by the end of my first year, I realized I was sort of in the world that I was supposed to be in and finished out a classics degree, bachelor's degree in classics at Wisconsin-Madison. Not long after that, I took a lot of what I'd studied about the Odyssey and I wrote this one man musical version of it, a 24 song retelling that in my head at least was gonna attempt to recreate some of the circumstances of 
of an oral tradition or a bard performing in a room. And I wrote it almost just to see if I could. And it turned into something that over 20 years later, uh, I'm still doing, I'm doing more. And, and one, one epic song cycle has turned into two with a piece on the Iliad. So it's every step of the way, it's just sort of been chasing these fascinating things I found in the field, which is, has done amazing things for me. Yeah. Nice. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Did you know right away that you wanted to take a stab at this creative venture or after you got the degree, did you kind of consider maybe doing something else that might be to other people considered a little more profitable? Yeah. <laughs> ah, you know about how this world works very well. I considered going to grad school, which I don't know if is more profitable or not. <laughs> um, and I did for a number of years work a regular day job at a law firm that uh, I suppose something about my classics degree was attractive enough for them to hire me as a paralegal. But the music side for me and the music and classics intersection has really just been sort of a slow build towards it taking over my life. I never wrote it with the intention of it being uh, a moneymaker or a career. And, and I've just sort of found that there's enough interest in it for it to keep going, for me to keep doing it and for me to expand this this little modern bard niche so the biggest thing i did consider was, was was going on in graduate school just because i loved studying it i loved the material i loved the greek language i was really lucky at wisconsin to get not only the the, the language side but heavy dose on the literature side and the complet side as well from a couple really great professors so i had this sense of how the the poem and, and the material you know both homeric and all sorts of ancient material has inspired artists and and, and creators since then and, and studied that. And I think it was just like, well, maybe maybe I can take a stab at doing something along the lines of, of what these other folks have done with it. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I think everyone who goes through a classics program at some point sort of considers a, a maybe possibly going on just because I don't think anyone who, you know, cares enough to go all the way through with a classics degree would want to sit here and say, well, okay, the learning's done. You know, it, I don't think they're going to say, there's nothing left for me to learn. All right, I got what I came for, bye. So I would say you did what many of us have considered doing, but obviously it's not always the best option. So I, I applaud you for, for figuring out, you know, okay, well, maybe I won't do that and I'll go try something else. And yeah. so when you decided you were going to take on this cool modern bard venture, yeah. you know, did you know you wanted to try to sing it? Did you, do you play an instrument? You know, I know that instrumentation is a big part of the ancient world as well. Yeah. So there's so many different ways musically and just creatively you could have gone. So tell me a bit about how that developed yeah sure um i, I guess what what's uh, interesting to look back on it now because now I've, I've written this first piece the odyssey um over 20 years ago which is which is crazy at the time i i definitely thought about a lot of different ways to put it across i thought do i want to do like a recitation where i'm recreating you know something in the original language or certain aspects of the original language and that part of course interests me because it's fascinating to think about but i think i got the sense that you know, there's so much speculation <laughs> around that and so little evidence that it wasn't. And also, if I did that for my modern audience, it would be almost just like recreating an artifact. You know, it wasn't I was really interested in trying to make the poems come back to life as performances that were shared in rooms with people. You know, that was the interesting aspect of it to me. And I guess I sort of went through the calculus in my head of if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need to do some sort of sleight of hand and try to figure out like 
what parallel experiences I can create in modern times that might mirror what was going on in ancient times. And of course, like everything else we do, right? A, a lot of it's guesswork slash defense of your, of your thesis on this. So I think in some sense, I was lucky in that I was young and sort of like, I didn't know this would turn into a career. I wasn't doing it for like a, an academic reason or um, a money reason or anything. I just thought it would be really neat if I can do this. And like, what do I want my audience to get out of this? What do I think is valuable that maybe I've learned intellectually that I can sort of sneak into a performance and turn the modern audience onto, try to get them past some of the hurdles that sometimes the poems have for modern audiences. So I, I play the guitar and I'm a singer songwriter and I immediately sort of saw these parallels between what a lot of singer songwriters that we love do with the stringed instrument and the songs that create emotion in the audience that tell people's stories, that tell people's narratives, that create empathy, that pass on information or and narratives. Uh, and I thought, well, that's not that different. I mean, it is, but it, it's not like it's the same picture of people in a room listening to one person with a stringed instrument sing a story. And the biggest uh, decision I probably made creatively that was just more of an instinct was I wrote all these songs in first person as if I was the characters, the singer was the characters. Um, so they're, they're not narrative in the sense of here's a bunch of exposition that just is in song lyrics. They're more like inside what the characters are going through uh, in the story. And I tried to try to generalize their experiences to honor like the, the, the ancient Greek side of it or the pre-ancient Greek side of it, but, but also try to tease out what I thought universal experiences might be for mothers and fathers and sons and identity and being on a journey and all these other things in the Odyssey. So it's, I think it's, if you're creative and you have an academic background in the classics, you're kind of walking this constant line between balancing your classics brain and your creative brain. And like, sometimes they're, they're going to clash because your classics brain is going to say, well, I want this to be rigorously intellectually based. And I want to be able to defend this as if it's my thesis. And your creative brain is saying, but that's not going to work for the audience, you know, and you have to, you have to sort of constantly be playing this game of which parts of that classic side brain to use and which part of the creative side brain, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And obviously we have such great source material from the ancient world. So that kind of speaks for itself. That's really all the inspiration you need. Yeah. But what modern influences did you use to sort of craft your show. Yeah. So um, this is where like the fact that I had not only had sort of that I had a really broad based study of classics at Wisconsin, uh, I think really helped me. I had a, one classics professor and also one comp lit professor that were really big on looking at not only the source material, but also reception at that point. And I think this is long enough ago because it's the late 90s that uh, reception was sort of not as big as it is today. It was it was beginning, it, you know, it was out there and people were doing it. They just weren't call, calling it that, I guess, maybe. In particular, this comp lit class, we studied the Odyssey, but then we studied other pieces of work that captured some of the themes of home and identity. So we read, we read Ulysses by James Joyce. We read Omeros, a poem by Derek Walcott, uh, which is really beautiful. We watched like some pretty weird movies. Like we watched Planet of the Apes. They were home all along. You know, what does it mean to be home, you know, to your identity? We watched Waterworld. Um, so I had this kind of like high and low culture, all culture, I guess, experience of like, there are really no rules around this. Like there's so many different aspects you can you can use to tell your version of the story. And then I guess 
in real time, it was right as Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was coming out, which was, a you know, this on its face version of the Odyssey that incorporates sort of contemporary or almost contemporary music. And then also there was a beautiful staging of the Odyssey here in Chicago, where I'm based, that I saw right after I graduated uh, by a really wonderful director named Mary Zimmerman, who does a lot of work around reinterpretation of classical source material. And it was a beautiful sort of like, it made you feel the story, you know, it really brought it alive. It was not, it was evocative and sort of impressionistic and it, and it just left you feeling, left you feeling, <laughs> which I think is, is, is what I wanted out of, out of my version the most. Um, so those were, I mean, I could go on and on because I've sort of stayed, I guess, in, in contact with some of the other versions, but those were the ones at the time that really helped me see the range of ways I could approach the story. That's awesome. That's super cool. And what prompted you to keep it like this, this live performance? Like, I know that it is very evocative when it's live, but I mean, in thinking about kind of how interconnected digitally we are, you know, did you ever consider, you know, filming it or recording it so you could release it as a DVD or something? Yeah. Yeah. Just something. Was it like a a deliberate choice, I guess, just to to keep it? live that is an amazing question it was and it was sort of a stubborn choice first of all but it's kind of a boring visual performance. like part of what i committed to with this idea of no bells no whistles you're gonna sit still for 35 minutes and listen to this and, and we're not you know we're so used to supplemented media you know like and that was true even you know 20 years ago and it's even more true now i i was really stubborn and i said you know we're all gonna turn our phones off or whatever and nobody's going to film this. And I even went as to far as so far as to like ask people to take stuff down off the internet. Like I was really, I was really committed to there not being any document of it visually. I have an audio recording of it that I did about ten years into it. I was decided to permit for audio, but I was really fascinated with this idea that in our culture we basically have a way to preview almost everything. There's samples of stuff everywhere, and I wanted audiences to walk into it not knowing what it was going to be, the experience was going to be. Um, I've softened on that um, uh, a bunch. Uh, there's like a, there's a streamed version of it that I actually did at the American School in Athens last fall. That's like a full performance on YouTube that they did with some really nice, subtle, but really uh, thoughtful production on it. So I, at some point, I started letting go of that a, a little bit. And also, like, I, uh, once the pandemic hit, I started doing that piece and my Blues of Achilles piece over Zoom uh, quite a bit. And I allowed for recording and sort of archiving on that. So like everything else around it, it was this learning process of how I wanted it to live in the world. And I had some hard fought intellectual ideas about how rigorous I was going to be. And after a couple hundred performances or, or more, I um, I decided to relax those a little bit. and be a breathing tradition you know it's okay if it changes that's part that's part of the idea of performance right you you should let go of some of those those stubborn things every performance is going to be different no matter what so yeah great question yeah i mean hey i think it's cool and it, it does sort of get people still like into a theater, into a space, yep. it's encouraging them like, yes, we live in such a world where you can have everything kind of put right in front of you at home on your laptop. So to, to actually force people to, to get out and, and see something, I think is really great when I, when I do believe that a lot of people don't 
recognize or, or necessarily see that as kind of being a, a thing these days. So it's interesting because I think that generates a, like a real visceral reaction. And when I started out doing this piece, it was largely for high school, like freshman English classes that were reading it and talk about surprising an audience, like for a younger person to like walk in and start and to just sing it at, at, at a group of 14 year olds for 35 or 40 minutes, often without any amplification whatsoever. Like people don't ex still don't experience music like that, uh, that much anymore. Most of even acoustic music, you see it live is usually there's an intermediary of the sound system and i try the, the other thing i committed to early on was i tried my best to perform without amplification wherever the space and the audience allowed it because there's something different about how the direct human voice uh, accesses people's brains and emotions even without anything between it without any microphone or pa or, or reverb or, or whatever else you're going to put on something so uh, i definitely experienced what you're talking about this like well, this is different. Like we don't do this very often, you know? Yeah. I was trying to think about the last time I went out to even see, uh, not even just like a piece of theater, but music or, or anything that I couldn't just sort of, you know, pull up on, on YouTube yeah. or anywhere else on the net. And, you know, I think the last time I really made myself see beyond like a concert of a, like a, you know, super yeah, right. popular artist or something. I, I grew up and my parents are still in Chicago. Oh, nice. So having Ravinia, where it is, is oh. like a super... Every year, every summer, during their summer like concert series, when the CSO, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, for those who don't know Chicago, when they go up to perform, they would always do at least one or two popular films and play the score live with the, with the movie. And uh, my father and I went to see all three Lord of the Rings three different summers and then they also did a series of concerts of titanic and then they did gladiator or something like that so it was it was it was pretty rad i got to see all these really cool productions and i'm really glad that i did get to see them because yes i can see them when i watch the films there's something inherently special about seeing them played live with the film on a big screen and you just can't replace that and so i totally understand you wanting to have people feel that way when they, when seeing your show so total props to you for for holding out as long as you did for wanting people to to really experience it live when you knew you were going to do this and you knew that it was going to be musical you know did it cross your mind at any point that not only is it just kind of a cool, innovative thing because not a lot of people go with this medium, but did it cross your mind that also like the I, I think that musical theater is the closest thing we have, period, to any kind of ancient world productions like what we're doing with modern musical theaters, basically what the ancient Greeks had. And so to me, it's the closest form of artistic reception. So was that like also a consideration that went in because not only was sort of a traditional bard retelling just kind of what they had but but even when you know it, what they did expanded from just one man you know did it did that factor into the thinking i guess like the the intellectual side in in the in the time in which the poems were initially created all there was was the experience right there was no artifact because it was 
three literacy, or at least the, the development of it. So even when we have these forms of documentation, if you're dealing with like a live performance, like you're talking about in a space with people, there is a, a thing that is only created when you're there with those people taking in whatever's coming in you and, and that's gone. That's an experience that's not documented. So I, I was intellectually attracted to that. I was sort of like romantically attracted to how that was paralleling this, this pre-literate culture. And uh, that's exactly the type of thing I'm, I was thinking of is uh, what you described there for sure. I'm very curious, well, one, to see experience hear the show because I, I haven't, I confess I, I hadn't heard of it before. So I'm, I'm very excited to see it now. But also the the experience I do have with sort of a, a one man, one woman, one person show. At some point in college, and I went to the University of Missouri, we had a very small but dedicated classics department. And coming to our school was a, a, a wonderful woman who put on a one woman performance of Clytemnestra and I still have like a poster of it somewhere in my house buried in all my things yeah she was she was amazing I thought to myself it was really amazing there wasn't music in it it was it was definitely it was a stage play but I wonder and I'm very curious I if something like your show your music would be able to sort of partner with a show like hers and I wonder how magical it could be you know, putting them together. So kind of with that in mind, you know, like, have you ever thought about maybe partnering with someone who would tackle a different aspect of, you know, the performance and, and seeing what you might be able to create? Um, it did a little bit. And actually, uh, the I, I think one of the reasons I was attracted directly to just, just the Homeric poems as source material and not something like the tragedies or the comedies was, I think introducing that next performance sphere, whatever you want to call it, uh, and multiple voices and, 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 and staging, you know, that was almost something, it's not a judgment, but it's, the, it's a step in a different direction. You, you know, the epic poem is ostensibly one person singing or reciting, chanting, singing. Um, I will say that I'm in the process right now of adapting my second uh, epic cycle, the Blues of Achilles, for stage in a much more conventional type of music theater setting. And I think that I'm sort of going through the process almost of how does epic turn into tragedy, for instance. And I'm sort of doing it as a creator in real time. Like I wrote this set of songs that I saw as an epic performance, and now I'm having to transform them into something that's more like a, a tragic or, or like to your point, like a it's a staged performance. It's it's much closer to the to this city or, or 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 ancient ancient Greek theater. So I think I thought about when I chose my source material. I just knew like I want to be one person in this, and I feel like the thing, the type, the genre I can do is epic because it was one person with a with a, a stringed instrument. And now that I'm stepping into theater, I'm seeing that those seeds change in real time. You know, that's um, something I also saw when I had to take these performances and turn them into zoom performances was you know i was an artist and a creator going through a medium change just like the epics went from performance to text i was going from live performance to zoom performance which is a different medium you know entirely so i love seeing those like insights that i can get into ancient facets of, of ancient performance or the development of ancient performance that I feel like I can get as a performer in real time 
that you don't learn just from reading. You learn from going through it and saying, whoa, like, what did I have to go through to do this? I'm not saying it's always one-to-one with some ancient thing, but that's very much how we think we figured out all, you know, how Epic was an oral tradition. We looked at some people still doing it, you know, 80 years ago, and we looked for features that were similar between these performers and in and, and, and the text. So I, I love... I love when that stuff happens. That's magic and it makes you feel connected to people a long time ago and a tradition and it sort of makes you feel humble. And, it, you know, all, all the things that I think when you're doing this material correctly and, and, and you're, you're being uh, honest with it and you're invested in it, you, you have these, these moments where you feel connected to it in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, if, if I were creative in the sort of musical or even just the creative space you need to, to be an, an actor or something that would be both a fun challenge but also yeah it would be terrifying because I'm like wow I would have to take you know this this very well-loved material that everyone sort of has an idea in their mind whether they think they do or, or, or they don't so you know props to anyone who wants to take that on kind of along with that like so okay excluding obviously Iliad and Odyssey is there another poem or tragedy comedy any sort of ancient work that you would love to either take on yourself or see adapted so that you could maybe work with someone on it so maybe you don't have to do all of it yourself but yeah I think that's what um that's what may wind up happening with with this stage version of the Iliad of the Blues of Achilles is it's exactly what you're talking about where it's incorporating tools from us putting the music alongside another performance strain you know and taking more of the conventional character driven theater stuff and using the music as an enhancer or a partner or a you know a dialogue basically the Odyssey is entirely sung and it's sung straight through 35 minutes without stopping. And I thought that was important because of the journey aspect of it. I wanted the audience to go along for this ride that was physically demanding on me as a performer. And it was just like, you see somebody sing for 35 minutes straight, essentially, you know, um, the blues of Achilles, which is the Iliad retelling. I treat it much more like a kind of like your standard singer songwriter set where I introduce each song and there's some talking in between and it's not, like you're talking about, which is an actor becoming a character, but there's more narrative and references to characters. So I think I'm sure that performance was amazing. And I've certainly seen some uh, receptions that are, that are in that. I did try to do a, like a very early on theater piece with the Odyssey songs and they just, it just didn't seem like it worked. And that's could be because I didn't write the songs with that in mind. It could be because we just didn't get it right. And I've always tried to, be comfortable with it just being this musical piece. And for, you know, like my standard line to like audiences who have differing opinions about how I should do it is, well, you do a version then. Like this is, this is what like myth is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a collection of all these different versions, none of which have more or less value than the other ones, but all of which form the, the myth. Like it's not, you know, we, we don't have definitive versions. We don't, we, we like definitive versions as modern people, but we didn't, right? We, we allow for this flexibility and, and we allow each performer or each creator to bring out, like you said, you know, different strands of the story, different aspects. So it's a tough line to watch, you know, cause you want your thing to do everything uh, that, that the source material does for you. But like, how are you going to take a 15,000 or a 12,000 line poem, you know, that was created over centuries 
and do all of it in, in, in an hour, let alone, what is it, the line of the anxiety of influence or something like that, where you're like constantly intimidated, but inspired by your source material? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I see all the advantages. I, I love the idea. I love that someone suggested Gilgamesh, I think, right. especially since it's one of the epics that's not as widely known because, well, for obvious <laughs> reasons, people just don't like to focus on the ancient Near East the way we do on the classical world. Sitting here as one who has not actually seen your adaptation of the Odyssey, so I can't say for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, one, it's fabulous, and... Two, I'm also going to just go out on a limb and assume that a creative with your talents would be probably someone I'd love to see work on the Aeneid. Yeah, that's, it's funny because I wrote the Odyssey piece in 2001 and two, and I didn't write this Iliad piece until 2018 and 19. Like I was really, this is another thing I was stubborn about. I was like, I'm only going to do this one thing this way. It's going to be its own thing. Uh, and really, it was just that I was I accessed the Odyssey a lot easier and whether that was just because I studied it more or it's a more sort of doors to get in as a modern person. I was sort of terrified of taking on the Iliad because it just it's it, it's a heavy, heavy story. And, it, and it, it, there were aspects of it that I did not feel comfortable trying to portray or, or characters I didn't feel comfortable speaking for until I did a lot of work uh, thinking and reading and talking to people in the, in the military world, world, for instance. Now, though, I'm, I am trying to stay sort of like one step ahead. The two stories that have sort of caught my you know, brain and, and hung around in the back, I really love Philoctetes, the Sophocles play. I think that's just a, um, I don't know what I would do with that, but I, I, it really strikes me that some of the way I write music and some of the things I think about and some of the things I found important in the Iliad are, are also maybe in a way um, connected there. And I know that's a piece that people have done to really great effect in various modern uh, situations. And then also, and this is maybe goes to your point about collaboration. I had somebody come up to me at a performance in a lot within the last year and say, have you ever thought about doing something similar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it was uh, it was a professor of Near Eastern Studies. And, and I thought, well, that's really interesting uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, clearly that has aspects of both the, the texts that, that, that I've taken on. Um, so I asked her for like, a, here's the Epic of Gilgamesh right here. Um, that's something that, you know, I, I started reading about a little bit and just thought, I'm just gonna plant that seed. I know I have some people that could help me out with, with parts of it because it's not, something I studied nearly in, de in the depth that I did, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I feel like one of the things I've learned about being inspired by classical source material is sometimes you have to wait for it, for your yourself to catch up to it or for it to be the right time. One of the other amazing things about the text is they mean different things to you at different points in your life. And, and you sort of have to wait till you get to the part in your life when you're inspired by a particular text. If you keep your, your ears and your mind and your heart open, but collaboration, what I've been doing with, with adapting this piece for stage, I've done a lot of collaboration already with this. I've worked with a playwright um, and another playwright and uh, some actors in workshopping it. And it's been really excellent. Like, I think if you find yourself in the right collaboration with people, especially if you've been working on your own with this stuff for decades, it, it's really invigorating. And, and it can actually be a lot easier if you get along with the people because you don't have to do it all yourself. So. Yeah, that's, that's the one, see, that's the obvious one, right? Like, and it, it um, I'm, I have, a, the resistance I have to that, to me parallels kind of the resistance I had to the, to the Iliad for years. So I'm not, the piece of, of Latin literature I 
thought I might suit me better would be the metamorphoses, uh, just because th that to me is already sort of a collection of songs about things. Uh, the Aeneid was my favorite Latin I've ever read uh, in, in undergrad, and I was never never as good at Latin as I was uh, at Greek, uh, but the Aeneid I thought was an, an incredible work. So I, I wouldn't wouldn't rule any of it out, you know. The, actually, it occurs to me the other idea I had was to maybe write a cycle of songs about one of the lost epic poems, you know, one of the lost that we just, we don't have one of the three or four or to, to make up an epic cycle and then write a, you know, like to do something. Actually, that was one of my partnership ideas was maybe ask a poet to write one of the lost epic poems and then do a song cycle off of that, you know, really try to take it one step back in the, in the life cycle and experiment with that. So it, it takes a long time is the problem. As you know, as you know. Yeah, I can see things taking a very long time. I mean, it took me such a long time to get my own button gear to do a lot of projects that I wanted to. So, you know, I mean, I think it'll be I can see, obviously, why you wouldn't want to take on something as big and as challenging as the Aeneid and the fact that it is very similar to Homer's epics. Yeah in certain regards. Yeah. You know, as you were talking though, it, it got me thinking, I would actually love to see you take on one of my favorite tragedies, which is Euripides Trojan women. Sure. Because I think what, what I've been doing is I've been reading recently, a lot of different adaptations of the Iliad novelizations and, and yeah. other things. What have you, what have you read? What have you read? You know, Let's see, I, I read Song of Achilles, mm -hmm. and I just finished Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, which was Excellent. so Excellent. good. Excellent book, yeah. I'm going to be reading a few other adaptations. I think we've got Women of Troy. Yep. And, you know, I've, I've read Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships. Just my favorite. My favorite out of all of those. So, you know. That's, the, that's, her, that's her sequel to The Silence of the Girls, right? Yeah. Yes, I. I mean, I love everything she does. Anything Natalie Haynes does, I'm such a stan. That's really, that's really well done. Did, you've heard her like uh, 20 minute versions of Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah, I. She, no, she's amazing. That Iliad thing had me on the floor. I think it's like book uh, eight, 18 where she's like Menelaus finally does something right, and like that seems. <laughs> I mean, everything she does is, is amazing. So yeah, I just. I agree. Uh, but but hearing. Her, all these different reading all these different adaptations now i mean obviously they're they're so different and that's all between different books but there's something just so harrowing about their story that i think would lend really well to a musical adaptation i mean you know you hear of ancient greek laments when heroes die people die but you know you you kind of you're like oh okay a lament cool but I think there'd be something so visceral about hearing the, the, these tragic women's fates uh, unfold. So that I know would be very ambitious, but I think sort of musical adaptation. I agree. And it's funny um, you brought that up because uh, one of the one of the songs I'm working on for this stage version of the Iliad of the Blues of Achilles just today is sort of based on what the Trojan women do in book 22 when they learn when Hector's died and Andromache comes out on the wall and, and they're all lamenting to your point wailing you know for Hector but also for the city like they know the city's going to fall at that point right I mean he's he's the city and I was look I was just reading that passage thinking about 
exactly what you're talking about. You know, this oral AUR, you know, AL quality of, of what these this morning must have sounded like, you know, same thing in, in book 18 with uh, of the Iliad with when Achilles learns Patroclus uh, is dead and, and Thetis comes up with all her, her nymphs and they're all wailing and all the women, you know, all the women they've taken as prisoners are wailing. And you just think like it must have just been the most intense, <laughs> heavy sounds. I think that story is amazing, the, the play. And I, I love all the different receptions. I think that's actually something that students now and people now, there's so many more good, varied receptions of this material than there were when I was like, I would have killed for all the receptions you just listed. And, and, and then there's, there's a lot more than that too. You know, it's like, it's easy to lament sort of how the classical discipline is the trouble it's going through, like a lot of other academic disciplines, but this reception piece and I don't mean this disparagingly, like in popular culture, just accessible culture is really vibrant. And I think it's a sign that the material is reaching people in different channels. And it's not something I had when I was an undergrad. There was not these versions that you just listed that are really clearly exciting people, you know, and it's it's very cool. Yeah, I I totally agree. And And I was just thinking, you know, of all the different ways that we do encounter reception it flashed me back to uh, when I was pretty young I was I don't know if I, I think I was in high school or something but my dad when when I was growing up he was kind of a theater critic so he would go and he raised me and my sisters on, on mm. Shakespeare so we were like the Shakespeare nerd family and so we would always get tickets to see plays at the Shakespeare Theater right oh, cool. out on Navy Pier. And my dad, I remember he came to me and just said, hey, I know you're really big into just, you know, the different versions of these sort of classic pieces of, of, of art. So he sort of had to, to work on me and, and pitch me the idea of going. And I said, OK, Dad, just tell me, what is it? And he said, well, it's Othello, but it is not traditional at all and i was like okay well how untra how untraditional could you make othello right. i mean it's kind of uh and he said well it's a rap othello nice. play and i said wait what no what and he was like yeah he said it's it's like a rappy hip-hoppy othello and i said well is it like traditional but told in rapper and he said no i mean he's like the whole thing is rap so all the costumes are very yeah. contemporary there's going to be a lot of sort of neon staging and the sort of ripped jeans the, the gold chains and the the, the backward right. caps and i was like what on earth are people thinking so i went to it yeah. and it was fabulous i just really had a different expectation but uh, i ended up loving it it was it was weird but it was good weird in in the good way See, well, and it's, it's such it's such a great window into how elastic even what we think of as being fixed texts are, right? It, you know, like we, we saw a version of Hamlet out in on Navy Pier at Shakespeare Theater. It must have been just not long pre-pandemic where they they didn't do like the last act, or I can't remember how they edited it, but it was a it was a take on Hamlet that was more about his grief and less about the the politics around the story. So they cut out some of the stuff at the end that's about the politics and it's like wait you can do that like you can just end it early like and yeah of course like your job as an interpreter is to take a perspective you know so i i think that's i think that's what we get with all these reception versions too is you have a freedom and uh nobody owns it <laughs> you know nobody owns it it's it's meant to inspire people it's meant to be fluid it's meant to 
for people to feel something about it. Like do something that people don't like to, like you said earlier, you know, people have very strong opinions about these works and in their head, they, they have this picture of these characters and what they do and how they feel and what they look like. And, and if you do something that doesn't, you know, they're like, wait a minute, that's not, well, you know, I get that, but like, no, it's, it's all of it. It's, um, I will say like when I went to perform it in Greece uh, at the American school, that was a little bit like, well, all right, maybe these, this culture does, they get, I'm not going to go in and lecture about <laughs> what I think the oral tradition is behind this, because this is not my place to do that. But they loved it though. They, the, the audience loved it. You know, the people who were Greek who were there seemed to really dig what I was doing with it. And it was, it can, it can absorb this stuff, you know, it can take it, it can take it. We don't have to worry about uh, offending it, you know? For sure. Although I'm curious, is that a consideration at all when you take on such well-known, much beloved and again material that people get very very passionate about you know is that kind of a worry sometimes where do you have to factor in okay like yes you have creative license to kind of take things and do whatever but also because it's probably the most traditional of all the things that people are expecting sure you know is there right. a fear that okay well i can take it here but maybe i don't want to take it all the way out here because then people just won't like it because they're expecting the unexpected but maybe not like this unexpected it's a step too far mm -hmm. yeah um i mean i think that's a line you walk it can be used to great effect like you said and then it can be used to such effect that it winds up alienating an audience uh and, and also i mean you even have to take into account that if you play it for 100 people what if 85 people dig it and 15 don't you know like what's the you know is that a success is it a failure is it you know the, like i'll say the two experiences i have with that with the homeric poems are my odyssey version has very little of books um, nine through 12, the monsters. It just did not fit the story I was telling. And it's the most well-known part of it. Everybody knows the monsters and, and the adventures and the Cyclops and the siren. And I, I, I at best give that about 30 seconds for all four, four books basically. And I do it in such a way that to me, the way I wrote the lyrics stands in for what those four books are doing for the character of Odysseus. And it helps the audience understand what that part of the journey meant to him and his character. But audiences sometimes don't like that. They don't, they say, where were these? I say, they're in Homer's version. And this is, you know, this is my version. It's interestingly, I don't portray Odysseus uh, as like sympathetic because I find him sympathetic. I just, in my portrayal of him as a human being, I think audiences tend to feel more sympathy than they want to sometimes. <laughs> And, and they get angry at me for that, or, or they, they, will, they will confront me about that. They'll say, well, you portrayed him like this, but really he's a schmuck. And I'm like, well, no, I just sang what I thought he would sing as a character. And if you believe it, that's on you. <laughs> like, you don't have to believe everything. Um, and then the last piece where I feel like maybe I walk up to the line and maybe go over it a little bit, um, or, or it's a tricky line to navigate is in the Iliad, um, you know, a Achilles and, and Patroclus' relationship is clearly of interest to modern <laughs> audiences, as it was for ancient audiences. You know, it's not like a new question of what their relationship was. They've been kicking that around for, we've been kicking around for two and a half millennia. And I think that that was something I thought really long and hard about how I wanted to, because it's important to the story, first of all, clearly. You need to be pretty clear for yourself on, on, on what you're representing. Um, but you have to, I think, anticipate some of these points that the audiences are going to be particularly passionate or, or have fully formed judgments on. And I knew 
that I think is a, a consequence of a book like The Song of Achilles or, or It Sounds of the Good. Like there's more reception now around their relationship. So modern audiences have a, more to say about it, more to think and more to feel. And it's their connection to the story in a lot of ways. And that's, again, one of these moments where bards always adapted to their audiences. They always, the oral tradition was always about how are you going to get the audience to remember the story? And what do you, you know, do you need to drop in a little bit about their local hero to get them to remember it? Cool. We're going to do 10 lines about the local guy who killed a boar. Okay, great. Now we're back to the, you know, so I, I feel like that's like part of the job is to anticipate the flashpoints and navigate them for the audience, you know? For sure. And I'm I'm curious as well, when you kind of go around and have to sort of introduce yourself to people and, and describe what it is that you do, do you yeah. find that hard? Is it easy? It, you know, and, and what is the reaction when you kind of tell people, well, yeah. you know, I'm kind of like a modern bard? Uh, what's weird about it, it, yes, it's hard uh, because it's, what's the elevator pitch of what, of what I do? Like, you know, uh, I got to tell you about what, what I try to do and this thing and this thing. Modern bard kind of just captures, like people can connect to that pretty quickly. It's interesting enough. It's different from just singer songwriter but it's also not so like obtuse, you know, that you have to go through a lot of explanation. The thing that I found that's hard to describe to people who ask it, that at first I was really self-conscious about, but I learned over time was really a, a strength is I don't really belong to any one world. Like I don't, I'm a musician, but I does what I do doesn't primarily doesn't look like what people think of when they think of musician. It kind of does. Like I go places and play music, but, you know, it's not in venues that most people think of. And the shows are in the afternoon sometimes. And, you know, I'm not really like a classicist in the conventional sense. Like, you know, writing and publishing is not my thing. Although I've done some sort of writing in some of these great open source, you know, classics online journals that we have now that are, again, we did not have when I was in school. But it's not academic, you know, it's not peer reviewed. So like, at first I was really apprehensive because I didn't feel like I felt in fit in any one of the worlds. But then I realized I was like, well, that's actually really cool because I'm not really competing with anybody. <laughs> like there's not a lot of modern bards going around to colleges and universities and, and doing these things. And it it's really, once I saw that, it really helped me be confident going to people who would get what I do, you know? So like when I'm pitching a college professor, I don't have to really explain much about the classic side clearly. I might have to explain a little more about the music side, but it's turned into a much bigger piece of my life and my career than I ever thought it would because I'm doing something different and it inc incorporates all these different fields. It incorporates the academic side, the creative side, the musical side. I get to talk about everything I love about the material and everything I love about music and everything I love about performing, I get to do. It's not an easy elevator pitch, but it, it turns out that not everything that's cool. It has to be an easy elevator pitch if you know your audience and you know the people who are going to help you bring it to your audience. Nice. And okay, so I know you've come to Greece to perform. Yeah. You've done it around the U.S. By all standards, I could look at it and say, oh, this is super successful. It's gone global. That's what success looks like to me. What does success look like to you? Like, you know, if you could bring your show anywhere, where would you want to bring it? Hmm. That is a great question. It's 
been an evolving definition of success that like, I think is pretty typical for a lot of people where you're like, once I do this, I'll be successful. And then you do that and you're like, wait, oh, there's six more things over there. But no, I, I'm really proud of, of where it's gone. You know, you did a really nice little, done it in Greece and Rome and, and internationally. And I've done it, that piece 350 times in the US and 44 states. And I had this new piece, you know, like I said, the Blues of Achilles that seems to, to really be taking off that I'll get, I'm getting asked back to all the places I did the Odyssey to do this piece, which is really, that's a real definition, I think, of success is when people say that was really good last time, you know, come back and do your other thing. I have sort of a weird uh, definition of success, which I'm trying to play the Odyssey in all 50 U.S. states. And that is more just like a an interesting goal to me uh, that I think is less about validation and more just like a cool hook and a cool way to measure um, how far I can take it in, in the U.S. So I only have six more states to go, which is cool. I, lo I still love doing it. Like, I just love the baseline of performing both of these pieces. And I still think I can get better at them. I mean, even hundreds of performances in. I wrote them, well, the Odyssey I wrote, you know, 20 plus years ago, like I was a different person. So my own work means something different to me now than when I wrote it. It's like, I don't even feel like I wrote it. I feel like I'm just doing a thing and I'm interacting with the story differently and I'm interacting with the music differently. And it's really kind of a remarkable place to be as a, as a creative person. You know, it's like there's a freedom and a, a way it's, it's informing me and I'm informing it and in an interaction that's really, I'm gonna keep doing it until that stops. Like <laughs> as long as people will listen. Um, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't want to take this stage adaptation as far as, as Hadestown went. No, um, no, I want to, I'd love for it. I'm really excited about it because I feel like it takes everything I put into the music and it, it, what you brought up earlier, it adds other so storytelling tools and, and, and audiences can get everything I, everything I hope they get out of the music part. And then maybe when they can see characters on stage doing it, like a little a little bit more. We're bringing a little bit more of it to, to them. Um, so I hope that gets put on and, and, and does well. And then, you know, I hope I find another piece to be inspired by in the same way so I can make something else. It was really interesting going through the, the pandemic because I was another way in which I'm not a conventional musician. Most of my friends who are conventional musicians had really, really tough times in the pandemic because all the gigs went away. And, you know, I worked a ton doing virtual shows for, for especially the first year when everything was online, because what I do and the way I interact with an audience around discussion and it would work really well on Zoom. It wasn't my favorite thing to do, but it was professors were interested in anything to mix up, you know, their Zoom lectures. And it was also really cost efficient. You know, I could, I could just beam in from right here and, and, and they didn't have to pay for travel and, and I could still, everybody wins. You know, I, I, my career is good and, and, and students get to experience something. And there were people, you know, zooming in who were all around the world. You know, that's probably my biggest audiences were zoom audiences in some ways. So I'm also interested in what, how I can adapt it based on reality. Like what's, what's happening next, you know, that'll change what I do that I can morph, this raw material, this emotional material into, into different storytelling. I think that's really excellent. I think that's really cool. I know success is obviously measured differently by everyone. So good job. That was a really tough question because, <laughs> you know, if I ask that to 10 people, I'll get 10 different answers. So yeah. I think that's really awesome. I think being able to say, yeah, that you've shown a show in 50 States would be a really cool benchmark to hit. So yeah. I, absolutely hope that you hit that goal i i believe that you will because 
I mean, we're living in an age where there's such a an interest in in classical material. So I'm I'm sure people yeah. in those last six states are going to be like, yes, you know what? If it's classical, bring bring it. We'll uh, we're, we're we're getting there. Um, I've actually performed a bunch in, in Columbia, Missouri, really? uh, at Mizzou, uh, because uh, do you know the Missouri Scholars Academy at all? Do you know that? So I've played like there like six years, six different years, including just this last uh, June. You must know, you know, Ted Tarko. Yes, of course. He was. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was my dean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he started bringing me out there in like 2014 in the summers. Yeah. So I, I love Columbia. I I like. I've really grown to. It's probably outside of Chicago. Maybe, maybe the place I've played almost the most outside of Chicago, close to it, because I've been there six or seven times. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty. Pr- pretty neat. Yeah. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. Yeah, definitely. Wow, I'm I'm a little mad though because that would have intersected when I was a student down there. So it was always like June or July. It was always in the summer, um, okay. and then there were a couple years that I there was one year I didn't, and it was it was just a buzz in and buzz out like one performance and then play for the for those high school sophomore juniors whatever they were and uh, and leave. But I've being able to go back and do it this year after two years away it was really cool like it was i really i have a lot of a lot of fond memories and that's a great classics department too a lot of the you know the homeric scholarship that's a very important department for for homeric scholarship uh so i have a couple professor friends who, who came through that department for their phd like justin arf to do a lot of um do a lot of work around homer to me that's really interesting Oh man, it's it's bringing on the nostalgia because I haven't uh, <laughs> I haven't it's been a great down Odyssey there. Word too. Yeah, I mean, I just I haven't been down there in in several years now. Uh, definitely since yeah. before the pandemic. I was there for homecoming, I believe, in twenty nineteen, maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, I, and a lot of my professors actually, uh, at least three or four of them have all retired. So starts to happen, right? I'm I'm a little sad because I I really wish yeah. they were still there, but I mean, you know, they're still in Columbia, I, but yeah, I mean, another wonderful thing is I've gotten to go back and play at Madison a couple times, a, bu- a bunch of times, um, and my my home department there has been really supportive, uh, which is, you know, that that's that's a really special thing too. That's definitely a, a home of sorts, as I'm sure you feel about, um, you know, Mizzou, and uh, it's it's that was just this last spring. I got to go perform for the classical myth class at Madison. Uh, I got to perform the Blues of Achilles for the classical myth class, which was really like one of my most important classes, you know, 20 plus years ago, almost 25 years ago. And that was a really cool moment of just like, this is the class that, this is the reason I'm here and I'm doing it for this class. And it wasn't my original professor because he's retired, but it was the professor that like inherited the class from him. You know, it's the same, it was the same class. I was like, Wow, you never know. You never know where this stuff leads, you know. Wow, that would that would be the dream one day. Because I I started out yeah. in a big classical mythology class, and you know who didn't right five however many hundred people, and you know yeah. it's like yeah it's, uh... yeah we we'll, we well we went to universities with huge departments. I I have plenty of friends who you know the idea of being in a classics course with like four hundred people in one lecture is like ridiculous to them. They're like, what do you mean four hundred people? Yeah like, oh. right. It's, it's gonna be seven people, right? <laughs> yeah, they were like, you know, there's like not more than twenty, and I'm like, well, my upper level classes we had about between 20 and 30 but i was like no these big yeah. ones like 400 she was like yeah. oh my gosh what are you talking about that's crazy yeah well, that's a, and that those those are some of the classes that have survived too because they are really popular and you know i think they're very important to departments now um i think they're the most important because that's that's what gets you the foot in the door the other ones i mean yeah that that's for yeah. people who already like the stuff so that's a 
You're singing my tune. <laughs> exactly. So all I want to say is like, I do know that I would love to see one, the work you do have. I would love to see the future work that gets done. And obviously the material you're doing is, is quite different. So I would say, you know, it's not one of those traditional sort of, well, if it gets big, then it goes to Broadway and then millions of people see it. You're on a, a very different track, but what, what I can sort of envision if, you know, just from a casual observer, I would love yeah. to see your work picked up and enjoyed like fans of Einar Selvik. Do you know him from Wardruna? He's the lead singer. Uh, okay. I will look that up. Wardruna. It's basically, it's a, it's a Norwegian okay. uh, singing group and they basically take old Norse myths and legends and Sweet. they sing about them in the skaldic style. So nice. if you've seen the or heard of the TV show Vikings, they did like half yep. the soundtrack for that show. Cool. And yeah. so Einar goes, travels, and oftentimes he'll go with the rest of the Wardruna members. But oftentimes he'll just go tour alone and he'll sit and yeah. he'll sing songs about old Norse myth and legend in, in the skaldic style. So to me, I'm That's kind beautiful. of like, That's, that that seems like the path that you're on. And so, so I hope that well, it's, um, I, I hope that your, your success mirrors his cause he's, he's kind of a big deal and I've wanted to see him in concert for a very long time. And I don't know if I will, but yeah. I do. So um, that's kind of what I'm Excellent. envisioning. So I, I, I'm always, I'm always appreciative of every audience uh, because I think doing that stuff is, is asking something of your audience, you know, like it's not, kind of this is i guess to loop back where we started the conversation you know you're putting a little bit of a demand on your audience you know to, to something that's a little different from what they're used to and i appreciate like i don't have to fake appreciating audiences <laughs> let's put it that way I, I love anytime some people get in a room and they sit still and quiet for 30 minutes or an hour and listen to me sing songs about homer i just think like wow like that's that's a gift right there um whether it's 10 100 you know 800 like uh, whatever it is. And I mean, that's like, clearly this, this culture that of interest is the reason for the podcast, right? I mean, it's like, mm -hmm. there's, it's really cool what you're doing with it. And like, I keep saying, I wish I would have had stuff like this when I was in college. And I'm glad people do now, because it seems like it keeps the flame going and uh, illuminates all the different ways people are inspired by the material. You know, that's that it ties into my favorite thing, which is if people want to complain about not having things, I'm like, okay, well then create yeah. it. And so I kind of love that's how it. that's what we're doing, right? Like we didn't have either of these things and we're like, you know what? It's fine. We'll create it. That's Boom. It. That's exactly right. So exactly right. I love that we're doing that. And I mean, so now we've been, you know, talking about how both of our work sort of centers on, you know, capturing the essence and, and, looking at and analyzing and appreciating and loving these sort of timeless, amazing ancient texts and everything else. So I want to sort of pivot us toward another timeless text, or I think it's a timeless text, is Shelley's Ozymandias poem. So at the end of every podcast, I have each guest read it. And as soon as you've read it, if you could just, you know, tell us your thoughts on it, you know, I think it's a great poem. A lot of other people hopefully do too. You know, why do you think it is or isn't a great poem? You know, what sticks out about it to you, basically? Cool. All right. I'll read it first, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Let's do it. 
I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level stands stretch far away. Hmm. Well, that's intimidating. <laughs> that is so beautiful. I mean, I, it's funny because I've read it, but I've never had to do a dramatic reading of it. <laughs> and I've never thought about it in the context, you know. I, li- I like the line uh, and the thing that, that resonates the most with me. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. And I guess I like it because of my my standing as, as a sculptor or a, a creator. Um, and I, I, I'm of two minds about whether the author matters. Uh, the, the sort of postmodern, it's to me, says the author doesn't matter at all. But then the creator in me still nags. Like, I, it's kind of nice when somebody notices that the, that the sculptor, you know, well read the, the passions <laughs> um so i think that that's that's a really um that you know my heart jumps a little bit when i read that i think it's really beautiful is that enough 
Yeah, I mean, hey, it's as, it's as much or as little as you want to say about it because, yeah. you know, it's really yeah. hard. And, and obviously people, everyone re- interpret poetry differently. So, you know, there's there's no yeah. right or wrong. There's just reading it and then yeah. just yeah. absorbing what what it is that we've read. But I, what I will say is that when I read this, it is a very political statement by Shelley. Mm. It's a treatise in 14 lines on the ephemeral nature of political power where he's like, you know, mm. it's it's like a memento mori, right? A reminder that you will die. Yeah. This poem, you can analyze it in so many different ways. And I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I've analyzed it in every single way you, you could. And still, there's <laughs> always new things. But yeah, Very it's cool. just, it's a, kind of a, a, an argument about monumentality and, you know, what will, what will mm. remain. How do things remain permanent versus impermanent do you do it yourself do you need help even if you have all the help in the world is it gonna remain i mean thinking about it you know it, it's about this king it's about ramses the second and obviously at the time he thought his civilization was gonna last forever and it was gonna be the pinnacle of the world and well it was kind of buried right. by sand and then yeah other other things happened so you know, it, it, it could be read in so many different ways. So kind of thinking about it like that, though, the, the last question I sort of ask every guest is just think for a minute about our contemporary society right now. Is there like a modern version of Ozymandias? Do we have a modern Ozymandias, something that's so great and amazing, but mm-hmm. realistically, you know, are our future humans going to look back and be like, yes, I have the same opinion or no, that's terrible. That is a great question, especially when we're dealing with, you know, what epic poetry was meant to preserve. My brain says that we're going to remember the Beatles. And I know that's a slightly different, you know, a different agenda than, than, than that poem. And, but it's a really good question, you know, for, first of all, the practical considerations of how stuff lasts, you know, how, how, do, how does it actually make it to, to each successive generation or, or way beyond? Um, and is, is it the most important stuff that always makes it, or is it just the stuff that people like to your point had an agenda around and, and wanted to make it? I don't know. I, I'm not going to predict the future, but I'll say, I hope it's my version of the Odyssey and the Iliad. How about that? <laughs> that makes hey, that works just fine. You know, very, very self, very selfish, you know, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I guess part of what attracts me to, to just to put a button on it, the, um, I know there's a lot of political considerations around how the Odyssey and the Iliad were transmitted, um, but I do think the the creative spark and the 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 seed of it is 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 hundreds of years of thousands of people performing this thing, and I I find that you know this real folk tradition, and I find that really moving because it's not this auteur thing, uh, you know of somebody made a monument or whatever it's it's a it's it's humanity you know humanity made this and it's not there's no such thing as something that's perfect but it it's it bears a lot of the marks of a group (laughs) humanity you know not um so maybe there's something like that that we have that i don't know i don't know if we do maybe it's something we can't even anticipate you know now that's gonna last but what what a great question now my head's gonna explode all day (laughs) yeah it's uh it's a big one so i mean we can well first i'll say thank you again for for joining me uh it was was so fun to get to know you to talk to you a bit and and you know where where can people find you just to follow your work yeah uh, the two best places for for my classics work are uh, joesodyssey.com and the bluesofachilles.com. And then 
I also have a website, joegoodkin.com, J-O-E-G-O-O-D-K-I-N. And that's just a hub for, I also make non-classically inspired music, um, kind of more conventional singer-songwriter stuff. So those three places and then any of my social media um, accounts, just at Joe Goodkin. I post a lot about classics. I, I post a lot about the development of these pieces and my journeys to um, to perform them. And it's those are and then there are recordings of both of these pieces up on the usual music services and Spotify and YouTube and you, you can find me if you're looking for me. <laughs> uh, I also should say that just this fall I have a, a vinyl uh, LP recording of the Blues of Achilles that I just put out or I'm putting out I guess on a, on record which you can order through my website too. People like physical things um, and I recorded. The Blues of Achilles um, analog directly to tape, and it's a it's a really cool recording down here in Chicago that I'm really proud of. So yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And you know, uh, eventually when I get myself back home to Chicago, we'll we'll have to do some sort of uh, collaboration because we love to spotlight people who do classical work. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I I like that we have the Chicago and the the Columbia connection a little bit too. So. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 